Hello, welcome to Lung Cancer Voices, a Lung Cancer Canada podcast. My name is Christina Sitt. You may recognize me if you listen to our What's New In webinar series. This special edition of Lung Cancer Voices has been adapted from the live webinar. If you like these webinars and the Lung Cancer Voices podcast, please don't forget to like or subscribe. Thank you for your support. Hello. My name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Welcome, everybody, to the latest uh, What's New in Lung Cancer webinar series. My name is Paul Wheatley-Price. I'm the immediate past president of Lung Cancer Canada and a medical oncologist in Ottawa. And you'll be able to also see this and review this uh, or, or pass this on to your friends or family through the Lung Cancer Canada website, where this will be posted. It also will be released as a podcast through the Lung Cancer Voices uh, podcast channel. You may well have seen some of the previous episodes of what's new in lung cancer that we've been running these for a year or so now, uh, covering different topics in lung cancer. And we haven't covered radiotherapy before. Uh, So this is our first webinar to specifically uh, discuss what's new in radiation treatments in lung cancer. And to help us do that, we've got two great guests. So uh, Professor Corinne Fair-Finn is a professor in thoracic radiation oncology at the University of Manchester and the Christie Hospital in Manchester. Christie has a special place in my heart because that's where I decided I wanted to become an oncologist. Corinne, I don't know if you knew that. But uh, I was a medical student in, uh, in Manchester and in my final year, I didn't know what to do. And I went and did an elective in oncology. It opened my eyes and I never, never changed my mind since. Ironically, one of the junior doctors who was there uh, at the time became a colleague later, Dr. Fiona Blackhall, who was my sort of supervisor as a student. And we've, we've invited Fiona to a future version of this. Anyway, so Professor Fred Friend, welcome. And Dr. David Palmer is a professor of radiation oncology at University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. And we'll switch to first names if that's okay, but uh, both Corinne and David are are really well-known internationally in in the field of radiation in in lung cancer. So welcome to you both. The way we're gonna work this is I'm gonna moderate a discussion. We've prepared some questions that we'll go through. If you have questions uh, listening, please do go to the bottom of your screen and, and click on the Q&A section or, or the chat section if you prefer. We'll be monitoring both of those. And so after about 40, 45 minutes of initial discussion, we can then go through any questions that come up. Right, that's enough of my speaking. We want to hear from the two of you. David, let's come to you first. Just what is radiation? What is radiotherapy? How does it work? That's a great introductory question, Paul, and just thanks for having us both on uh, to shed some light on radiation. And that's the perfect analogy, shedding light. So radiation is basically an invisible flashlight that we can point at a cancer or an area where we think there probably is cancer. And usually that invisible flashlight is a flashlight of x-rays, but some centers have more sophisticated types of radiation. So basically what it does is it targets the areas that we want to target and it only works where we aim it 
just like your flashlight is only, if you point it at this wall over here, it's not going to show you that wall over there. Same with the radiation. If I point it at somebody's nose, it's not going to affect a cancer that could be on their ear. And the reason why I point that out is that it's different from chemotherapy or other drug treatment, the stuff that you prescribe, Paul, because your treatments go everywhere in the body. They go through the vein. So radiation, an invisible flashlight, often from multiple angles, all converging on the cancer, wherever it is. How does it work? Well, it damages the DNA of the cancer cells. DNA, as many of us will know, DNA provide the instructions for how our cells are supposed to work, how they live, how they grow, how they divide. And when we damage the DNA of the cancer cells, it kills many of the cancer cells. And that's basically radiation in a nutshell. Okay. So you mentioned chemotherapy there and the differences. Chemotherapy first started to, I guess the origins would go back to sort of mustard gas effects in the First World War that were observed, but really chemotherapies weren't really developed until the 1950s and, and on. But radiation goes back longer than this. And Corinne, well, you already corrected me before we started that I had my names wrong. Uh, could, could you give people a sense of the, the history of radiotherapy? Yes, so, uh, well, the actual, the actual history of radiotherapy dates back to the late 1800s. So a German physicist who was named Röntgen then developed x-rays primarily for initial diagnosis, diagnostic purposes to make diagnos diagnosis of fractures, for example. And actually, this was, a, of course, a major discovery, and he received a, a Nobel Prize in the very early 1900s. And around the same time, I can't remember exactly when, Pierre and Marie Curie discovered radium. And both discoveries from Röntgen and the Curie led to the use of radiation for the treatment of, of cancer. And then in France, which is my home country, there was a, a major breakthrough several years later. It was then discovered that actually to make radiotherapy or radiation treatment safe, you had to give smaller daily doses over several weeks to achieve a cure, but also achieve, um, well, reduce the risk of, of side effects. So that was really a, a major uh, discovery. And then more recently, there's been major changes in terms of advances in physics, computer technology, so that's later in the 20th century, and that has allowed to make the radiation a lot more precise. So we now use sophisticated uh, techniques using, obviously, computers uh, to help us to map precisely the location of a, of a, of a cancer in in three dimension and to ensure that the very high dose of radiation is delivered to the tumor, avoiding as much as we can the surrounding tissues that will be sensitive. And I think we'll come to that. And uh, David is going to talk about the process of uh, how we deliver uh, radiotherapy. Yeah, well, why don't we do that now? And, and, and uh, so maybe we could do this from, from, from two perspectives. Uh, if if you, one of you or both of you, you're in the clinic with a patient in front of you, and, and maybe we don't need to make this so lung cancer specific at the moment, just in more general processes. So you're sitting with someone and there's, you're gonna make a recommendation for some radiotherapy treatments. Can we look at it about what, what will happen for that patient? What processes they'll have to go through from the recommendation to actually getting the treatment? And then we can, uh, 
and then the sort of the same question for what happens on your side of things in terms of planning that radiation and all of the, the technology and, and, and different um, uh, professions involved in going through that. So, um, well, David, let me come back to you. Which, which, which side do you want to take the... Yeah. Uh, why don't I start with the patient side? Yeah, I'll do the patient side. This is a great question because we ask our train doctors in training to tell us all these steps. So whoever's watching the webinar, you'll be you know part way to being a radiation doctor. So the first step, Paul, as you mentioned, is that the patient would meet with somebody like Corinne or somebody like me, and at that meeting we would talk about why we were doing the radiation. We would talk about how long the radiation is going to be in terms of weeks, and, and that question we'll tackle later. And we'll talk about the side effects, and then the patient will make a decision. I want to go ahead with the radiation or maybe not. But assuming that they do go ahead with the radiation, the next step is to design the radiation. And it, that involves a special CT scan that we do that's basically used to measure the patient, to see where the tumor is, and to see where all the organs are, the organs that we need to avoid. So the patient will come for this scan. They'll get a few little tattoos, usually that are just the size of a dot. And the scan just feels like a regular CT scan that many patients will have already had before. But there might be a few differences in terms of how we position somebody. We need to make sure that somebody's not going to wiggle during the radiation. So we use devices that we call immobilization devices. In some cases, for a head and neck cancer, it's a mask that actually attaches to the bed that holds somebody down. That can make people a bit claustrophobic sometimes. We have to give them a bit of a medication to make it feel better. But for patients with lung cancer, usually you don't need a mask like that. So you'll get your scan, you'll go home and behind the scenes, a lot of stuff is going to happen while you're waiting. At most places in Canada, from the day that you meet the radiation doctor to the day you start, we require that to be no more than two weeks. And I'll be interested to hear if that differs in the UK. So about two weeks after you meet your radiation doctor, you'll be coming for your radiation. You come into the building, you're in the building for about a half hour. You lie on the table, just like before, the invisible flashlight turns on and you don't feel anything from the radiation. During the radiation, during those weeks of the radiation, you'll usually meet your radiation doctor perhaps once per week to deal with any of the side effects that can accumulate over the course of the radiation that they will have talked to you about. And that's, I usually tell patients to think about that as a potential sunburn on the inside or outside. So any organs in the way, you can get a sunburn of your skin, for example, or for lung cancer patients, it's often a sunburn of the swallowing passage, which we call the esophagus, which can make it sore to, to swallow. And then when the radiation's all when the radiation's all done, I'm oh, sorry, Paul, when the radiation's all done, basically the, the, the doctor will keep an eye on you for that doctor or part of their team for perhaps up to five years. So can I just go back? So the, the actual practical steps then, so there's the recommendation, then there's an appointment for this planning CT scan, and then within two weeks, they come in, lie down, the flashlight does the treatment, go home. You mentioned the tattoos. What, what's the purpose of the tattoos? Yeah, so the tattoos are a way to line up patients. The, the rooms have lasers in them, and the lasers are used to give an initial positioning for the patient. Now, back 30 or 40 years ago, maybe even 50 years ago, that was the only positioning that was done. So they would do the tattoos, maybe just do an x-ray and get the tumor as best as they can into the area they're targeting. But now after we position someone with the tattoos, we do a special CT scan or sometimes an MRI scan for some of the really advanced machines to make sure we have the tumor exactly where we want it. 
So the tattoos are, are more of now a rough setup type of approach. And in some cases, they're not even needed with some machines because we now have these new technologies. But pretty much all patients in Canada would be getting tattoos. Okay. So in, in purely lay speak for a medical oncologist like me, it's so you don't miss. <laughs> so we don't. It's, it's yeah, it's so it's, it's the first step. So we don't miss. That's right. <laughs> and maybe just one more question that pops into my mind is, and then I'll go to Corinne for the behind the scenes work. Let's say it's me and I've got a tattoo here and I'm lying on the bench and, and, and the flashlight's going to come around and, and treat me with radiotherapy. What if I take a big breath at that point or I breathe out? Presumably, if I take a deep breath, my it'll things will move. Yeah, yeah. How do you handle that? Yeah. So depend. So if you have, if you're at a center with the latest technologies, they will have accounted for breathing. If you have a lung cancer and we're trying to cure it, they'll have accounted for your breathing in the design of the radiation. We have a system now that monitors your breathing. It monitors the surface, your skin surface, just like if you have a phone that can do facial recognition. It's the same kind of technology, and if you're if you're um, if you, if you're outside of a certain allowable position, then everything will stop. We can even do is to have a situation where we only target when you're breathing in and out, and the tumor is moving up and down. We we, we can target the tumor only when it's in exactly the right spot, um, and that can be done with the CT treatments, the ones that use MRI that Dr. Faber Finn has. So there are a lot of cool things, and and I like to think about the phones that we had when we were in high school versus the phones that current high school kids have, like we didn't even have phones, <laughs> right? But that, that's how much radiation has changed in the past 30, 40 years from the flip phone and the Palm Pilot to, you know, being able to live your whole life off your phone. Yeah, we didn't have phones. We had two plastic cups for the piece of strength. <laughs> um, Corinne, so the same, I guess the same two week window then, if you work to a two week from recommendation to treatment, what do you guys have to do um, the patient's going to go home, come back for the scan, tattoos, go home, come back for the treatment. What's what's going on behind the scenes to make this work? Well, a lot goes on behind the scene, Paul. That's the answer with a very highly skilled team of, of people. So that includes a physicist who will be doing all of the you know clever calculations on the plan. And you know, as mentioned before, that is with the aim of delivering the high dose precisely to the tumour and avoiding dose delivered to surrounding organs to minimise the risk of, of side effects. Then you have what we call in the UK radiographers, so called radiotherapy technicians in other parts of the world, who will be more have a, a, a more patient-facing role. So when the patients come into the department, they will, of course, welcome them set them up on the treatment bed and then will be uh, uh, actually the people who will ensure the delivery of the uh, radiotherapy treatment. And an important development that has taken place in the last uh, 15 years is that we now have the ability to image patients on the treatment machine, which really ensures the very high precision of this treatment. So somebody receiving radiotherapy for uh, lung cancer if it is delivered with intention to cure would be imaged typically every single day to ensure that we are hitting the right spot and if that is not the case then the bed can be moved and then the patient is re-imaged again uh, until you know we know that the, the treatment is delivered precisely to the right place uh, so that's a, a very, very big advances in, 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 the, in, the, in our treatments. 
And then obviously the radiation oncologist during treatment will review patients typically once a week to check on side effects. Although nowadays, partly since the start of the pandemic, I'm sure you have the same in Canada, we have implemented more and more sort of remote follow-up of patients, including during the treatment to avoid direct contact. And uh, you know, certainly at the Christie, we're using uh, electronic patient reported outcome more and more so patients report on their own symptoms and then we can decide whether they need a face-to-face appointment or not during radiotherapy or after radiotherapy and then of course let's not forget the medical oncologists like you Paul take a very important role because uh, you know increasingly our treatments are combined treatments right. so many of our patients uh, will be receiving drugs either during the radiotherapy or after radiotherapy so it's really a team effort can i take you back uh, just a couple of steps where you mentioned the, the physicist calculating the doses so sometimes if i take a wrong turn in the in the cancer center here and i'll end up in the the dark bunker of the radiation planning offices. I'll see, you know, my radiation oncology colleagues sitting over a big screen with with what looks like colored pencils, drawing shapes on someone's anatomy in different colors. What's going on there? Yes, absolutely. So that's a very important part of what we do. So as radiation oncologists, we have to know the anatomy of, uh, you know, both a normal anatomy and also the anatomy related to the cancer very well. So part of our role is to indeed draw on the CT scan that David mentioned before, uh, so the, the, the done for radiotherapy planning purpose. Um, so we, we draw around uh, the tumor itself, the lymph nodes that sometimes can be affected and that in, feeds into the, the, the planning process. So that's uh, you know, a, an important part of what we do. And then maybe just to clarify, either one of you to take this, when, when the radiation is being delivered, how do you do that? If you've drawn with your colored pencils around the tumor and the lymph nodes, presumably it's not a square that you can just aim at. It's highly contoured, three-dimensional, how do you, if I'm lying here having radiation, how do you deliver it? Does it just come at one angle, the radiation, or does it come from different angles to, to catch that? How do you how do you do that? Yes, yes, without going into the a lot of details, the different ways of delivering radiotherapy. So either with multiple beams coming from different angles around the patient or what we call arc therapy. So essentially the machine rotates and then delivers sort of radiation in a sort of arc way around the patient. So all of that is designed to shape the high dose volume precisely around the tumor. And again, with the um, uh, aim to uh, reduce the dose delivered to the surrounding normal tissues. Okay. And Great. Thank I'll, you. I'll maybe I'll just add, you know, because I was talking about the tattoos that we like so much. So after the tat, after we line you up based on the tattoos and we do a, a scan, we we overlay today's scan versus the scan that we were expecting in terms of position, and and the radiographers, the radiation therapists will move you in whatever direction you need to be, so the tumor on today's scan is exactly where it's supposed to be compared to what we were expecting. They'll move you by a few millimeters. They can rotate you and do all kinds of stuff. And that's how we know that that's how we know that we're not missing. Okay. 
Well, I hope people have found that interesting. I found that fascinating just to know the, the kind of steps to make sure it's accurate. Let's get into lung cancer. I thought what we could do is we could split this up by sort of different stages of lung cancer and um, how you use radiotherapy in different in different stages. There is, there is a question that's just come in about um, a standard radiation versus saber. Um, um, and and uh, so we'll have to define what, what saber is or SBRT in those terms. Um, maybe David, I'll come, come to you then first for these early stage lung cancers. So we're talking sort of stage one, stage two, small lung cancers that maybe haven't spread to lymph nodes or just gone to a local lymph node. Um, normally surgery is the, is, is the standard there, but, but that's shifting, is it, isn't it? Yeah, so a stage one lung cancer, there's a nice picture of a set of lungs on Dr. Feberfin's background. A stage one lung cancer would be if you had a, a lung tumor in there, in those lungs that was maybe three centimeters or you know just over an inch in size. And it's true that surgery is still the preferred choice for people who are fit enough to undergo surgery and those who, and not only just to be fit enough, but you have to want to undergo surgery. But for people who have some medical problems let's say their breathing isn't great or they have a heart problem or they're older and more frail, then we do radiation. For years, the standard radiation was just actually a beam from the front and a beam from the back. You would just zap right through the whole body. This would have been 20 or 30 years ago. And that would be delivered over maybe five or six weeks of radiation. And the cure rate might've been 60% back then. But now with all these techniques that we just talked about, we can give radiation very, very precisely. And because we can give it so precisely, we can wrap around a tumor with our radiation. We don't have to give the radiation over six weeks, a little bit every day. We can give the radiation in just three days, even just one day in some situations. So a very, very extremely potent dose of radiation, but just in a very small amount of time. And that's rather than calling that very precise radiation, we wanted a fancier name and we call that stereotactic radiation, which some people abbreviate as saber, which is the cooler of the two abbreviations because you have your lightsaber. The other one is SBRT. So if people are listening, you might see both of those. And we think that with the saber or the SBRT, the, the chance of killing that cancer right there probably around 90%. And most people, there are some side effects and most people actually have no side effects from the saber because it's so precise. So in general, if you have a stage one lung cancer, surgery is the first choice, but for people who can't have surgery at most places in Canada and in the world, saber would be what you'd be getting. Great. Maybe just a, just a quick follow-up question. So saber or SBRT, when you're talking about 90% cure rates, what, why is that not happening instead of surgery routinely? Yeah, that's a good question. So in order, as, as you know very well, Paul, it's kind of like a boxing, the way the boxing world is, is set up, where you have the heavyweight champion. You know, when we were kids, it was Mike Tyson, but he's long gone. And then you have the challenger. And the only way to become the champion is to have a head-to-head -head match, right? Evander Holyfield couldn't just say, okay, I'm the champion now because I've got bigger biceps. He actually had to go head to head against Mike Tyson and he did win, um, but that's a whole other webinar. <laughs> so right now, what, what are going on are, are randomized trials, which people know now from the COVID vaccine world are really the only way to prove, to compare two treatments or to prove that something is, is, is better in medicine. So right now, 
Um, there's a big trial in the US run by a close friend of Corinne's and mine, where patients who agree to go on the study, a coin is flipped and half of them get surgery, half of them get the stereotactic radiation, and we're seeing how they do. Um, there are some advantages of each, and I think they both have a very, very important role. And until we have that data it's from that trial, it's more about individualizing as best as we can. Okay. There are a couple of questions coming in about uh, inflammation and, and tiredness after radiation. I'll tell you, we will, we will get to that. We're going to kind of come to side effects and things in, in, a, in a little bit. Um, so bear with us for, for those questions. Okay, so that's early stage, stage this, those stage one cancers. So stage two and stage three, Corinne, I'll come back to you, where the, the lung cancer is bigger, it's not spread to other parts of the body, but it is maybe gone to lymph nodes in the middle of the chest. And technically we're getting to the point where surgery is not really going to manage to get this out safely. What's the role of radiation for these, what we call locally advanced or stage three lung cancers? So for locally advanced disease, radiotherapy plays a major role because the majority of patients cannot have surgery for technical reasons. So the first thing to say about uh, radiotherapy is that it's generally not delivered by itself. It is most of the time combined with either chemotherapy and nowadays increasingly immunotherapy. So it very much depends in terms of you know, what treatment is going to to be delivered, what is, you know, that depends on the fitness of a patient, more so than the age of a patient, and also taking into account, you know, other medical conditions that they may have. So for patients who are fit, uh, generally we give a combination of chemotherapy and radiotherapy given together, and that's what we call concurrent chemoradiotherapy. And then nowadays we have evidence from a uh, randomized trial that giving immunotherapy after completion of chemoradiotherapy improves survival. And then for those patients who are less fit, we sometimes give chemotherapy first and radiotherapy or, or radiotherapy alone. And then for patients who are really, really you know, not, 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 not fit at all, uh, may have major other medical conditions. You know, sometimes we give lower doses of radiotherapy purely to help with you know, the control of symptoms, but that would not be the majority. So radiation, you know, generally you said it's a cure, but this is this is quite an intense treatment that you're describing with the combination of of the the, the, immuno, the radiation with chemotherapy and then maybe immunotherapy as well. Yeah. How long can you maybe just, what, what's the kind of commitment a patient's gonna have to put themselves forward for to, to get through this? Yeah, so it is, it is a big commitment in terms of time, in terms of traveling, particularly if people live quite far away from the center where the treatment's been delivered. So the chemoradiotherapy is typically delivered over six weeks. And then uh, uh, we, after that, we deliver up to a year of immunotherapy treatment. So uh, yeah, over a year in total of treatment. And, and that six weeks is every day. Uh, the, the immunotherapy is just is once a month or once every couple of two to four weeks, but the radiation so, we're talking about here is every day. Huh? Well, excluding weekends. So typically we treat Monday to Friday for six weeks. And then, you know, we give a, there's a, there will be a short gap of two to four weeks, and then uh, immunotherapy treatment will start. 
And how do you know that six weeks is the right answer and you shouldn't mm -hmm. actually carry on and give 10 weeks or do it over two weeks? Yes, yeah, so we do know actually, we now have uh, evidence again from these trials that you know, we uh, consider to be the best way of providing evidence in oncology for randomized studies that actually delivering more dose over a longer period of time actually is detrimental. So I know it's counterintuitive. You would think that the more dose you give, you know, the more control of a disease you will achieve and the better the survival of patients, but that is not the case. Um, so we do have very good evidence that six weeks is uh, enough. And then, uh, but, well, that is in the locally advanced stages. I mean, David talked about the early stages where we know that actually um, high doses are very beneficial, but if they are delivered in the way that we deliver them with the safer treatments, then that means with a very small number of treatments, typically one to eight treatments maximum. So that's a very different context. Okay, so well, let, let's, let's move on to the next topic. So D David, we've really been talking in lung cancer now about stages of lung cancer, which are considered curable, stage one, two, three, increasingly difficult as the stage gets higher, which is, I guess makes common sense. Stage four lung cancer is generally considered not a curable condition, although there's been so many advances now that have seen people live well for far longer than we ever used to see. Now, a lot of those advances have come with, with things like immunotherapy and targeted therapies, but where does radiation fit in when radiotherapy treatments in, in stage four lung cancers? Yeah, or that's, that's a... Cancers. That's a very, very appropriate question because the stage four group of patients is the largest group. The way that I would envision, the way that we talk about radiation in this group of patients who have stage four cancer, one group is where we're looking at symptoms. And the other group is when we're looking at trying to kill as much of the cancer as we can. So let's talk about the first group first, the trying to treat for symptoms. And this is what we've been doing up until maybe 10 years ago. This is all that we were doing. And this would be a situation where a patient had a spot of cancer that was bothering them. It could be the original tumor in their chest, which could make, maybe make them short of breath. Maybe they could even be coughing up some blood. Or it could be a spot of cancer that had traveled somewhere else, which we call a metastasis. So there could have be a bone metastasis that hurts in the bone. There could even be a brain metastasis, which can cause problems in the brain. And so for those types of spots, radiation is very, very helpful for improving symptoms like cough, coughing up blood, pain, headaches. Um, and those radiation treatments would not be, the goal wouldn't be to just eradicate whatever you're treating, but to just slow things down to improve symptoms as much as you can. And it would usually be maybe a week or two weeks of radiation, maybe a third or half the dose of radiation that we would use in a patient who had stage three cancer or we trying to kill every last cell. And the reason why we didn't try to kill every last cell is because we didn't think it was needed, right? If, you, if, there's, if there's a lot of cancer everywhere and you have to use a very high dose to somebody's brain to try to kill everything, you might give them substantial side effects that take up a good portion of their good quality of lifetime. That's sort of the first reason why we use radiation for symptoms. Nowadays, we're also looking to see if we can use radiation for people who only have a small number of spots of cancer, 
a small number of metastases to try to kill everything. So to try to annihilate all the spots of cancer. And that's where we're using this saber again, where we're pinpointing these small spots of cancer. And we have some randomized trials that suggest that we can improve how long people live if we do that. But it's a relatively new approach and the biggest trials are still underway. But I even see in the questions, we have one person who's written in to say that that's what they had received. And that's getting more and more common now. The idea being, if there are only one or two spots of cancer, maybe even three or four, if we use saber to kill those, can we keep the cancer from coming back? And it's a bit of an open question, but a lot of centers are providing that type of treatment. And that's the question in there about oligoprogression, I think is the one you're uh, talking about, David. The, so maybe you could just define what this, this term oligo, oligoprogression. Yeah, so, Again, we like to use bigger words if we can, unfortunately, sometimes in radiation oncology. So oligo just means a few, right? So when my kids tonight ask me if they can have a cookie, I'll say, you know, only oligo cookies, not poly cookies, not a whole bunch of cookies, maybe one or two or three. So oligo means a few. So we use the term in two ways. One is oligo metastasis, meaning just a few metastases. And so maybe three spots of cancer, you might want to target those with the saber. The other one is a little bit different called oligoprogression. So meaning there might be lots of spots of cancer that are very well controlled with the drug treatment that you're giving Paul, but a few of them are progressing. So instead of saying a few of them are progressing, we say oligoprogression. And sometimes we can target those with the saber as well, the saber. Okay, thank you. Okay, so I think we've covered, you know, what is radiation, the process of giving it, the general indications in early stage, locally advanced, and now advanced. We've touched on oligoprogression. Corinne, can I come back to you then for, there's a number of questions that, that are, are coming through, and this was one of the ones we were gonna talk about, which is around safety, side effects. I think David mentioned a sunburn on the inside and the outside. What kind of side effects, and I know this is general, it's going to depend if you give one dose or six weeks, but what, what are the general kind of principles of side effects of radiation that people look out for? Yeah, so the first thing to say is that they can be highly variable from one patient to another, and there's still aspects we don't understand possibly related to the genetics of patients. Um, the other thing to say is that the side effects of radiotherapy are certainly a lot less than they used to be with modern radiotherapy techniques. Uh, I mean, for example, one of the, the side effects is the inflammation of the, the gullet and patients having problems swallowing. I mean, in the past, in our practice, partly when we were combining chemotherapy and radiotherapy, we used to admit patients regularly because it was struggling to eat or even drink and had a risk of becoming dehydrated. Uh, nowadays, it's extremely rare we actually have to admit patients for that reason. So uh, we've made a great deal of progress. Now, in terms of um, the common side effects of radiotherapy, so they include uh, tiredness. And I think someone has asked a question about tiredness. You know, I often say to patients that, you know, tiredness can be related to the direct effects of radiotherapy because of the inflammation that develops in the body, but also simply because they're having to travel every day from home and sometimes quite long distances. So I think it's a combination of both. 
Uh, the skin toxicity is often not a big problem. You know, patients can notice some redness on their chest, but it's rarely severe. Um, sometimes it can be more severe if patients have lymph nodes just above the collarbone here in the neck and you can develop a bit more of a brisk reaction. Then I've already talked about the risk of inflammation of the, the gullet and problem swallowing. Someone has also mentioned in the chat issues around inflammation of the lung tissue that is surrounding the tumour. So that is a um, side effect that can cause a so-called pneumonitis and it can cause a cough, shortness of breath, but it's rarely very severe, uh, certainly in the first few weeks following radiotherapy. It can, however, lead to so-called fibrosis, which means scarring of the lung tissue. And, you know, partly in patients who have a respiratory function that may not be optimal before starting radiotherapy, that can affect them more in terms of their breathing in the, in the longer term. And then something that um, is becoming more apparent that we actually knew very little about a few years ago is the impact of radiation on the heart of patients. And you know, many of our patients already have a history of cardiac problems, but we know that actually de delivering radiation to the heart can be detrimental and can affect patients' survival. So uh, there is now a lot of research going on around the world and certainly quite a lot in my institution where we are looking at ways of reducing the dose to the heart to try to uh, improve patients' survival. But you know, the, we, we want to do this in a way that means that we still deliver a high dose of radiation to the tumour. So it's a bit of a compromise between making sure that uh, you know, we treat the, the tumour in the best way we can, but at the same time, uh, we, we avoid the heart. And there are some advanced techniques with radiation. I think we're going to talk about that a bit later. For example, proton therapies, which uh, in some patients, not all, can help reducing the dose to the heart. Well, I'll come back to proton therapy in a minute. Can I ask, and either of you want to take this, sometimes I, I get asked about radiation side effects when I'm meeting people and I, and, I, and I try to be as accurate as I can, but of course it's not something I do every day. So I, people sometimes will say to me, well, can't radiation cause cancer? And I kind of say, well, yes, it can, but, and I don't know if my answer comes across as a bit flippant because I kind of say, well, look, if you if you get another cancer in 20 years because of the radiation you're receiving now, you've survived this cancer. But am I, am I saying the right thing? Does radiation cause cancers down the line or is that really uncommon these days? Yeah, it, it, oh, it does, it does. And uh, you know, when you look back at the history of radiation, at first they didn't know that. And it's something that, that emerged in the 1920s and 1930s as many of these pioneers then went on to get radiation-induced cancer. So the, the risk of, of radiation-induced cancer depends on the age of the person who's getting the radiation and how much radiation you're giving and, and to where. The older you get, the risk goes down. The younger you are, the risk goes up. Big areas of radiation riskier than smaller areas. So when you look at, for example, a chest X-ray, if you have a chest X-ray or even a dental X-ray, the chance of that causing a cancer is one in a million or less. It's very, very low. I actually just looked this up the other day for a patient. It's very, very low. Higher in kids, lower if you're 80, right? 
And if you're someone getting radiation for something like a lymphoma when you're 20 or 30, the risk of radiation-induced cancer will be a lot higher. For my patients who have lung cancer, who are in, often in their 60s or actually more often in their 70s or 80s, the risk of a radiation-induced cancer, I think a fair ballpark would be around one in 500, maybe one in 200, definitely less than 1%. That's my best estimate. And so it is an important thing to think about, but you have to put it in context because our other option is to not do radiation, in which case there is probably no chance for cure, unfortunately, if that's what we're trying to do to cure a patient. So it's one of the risks that it's good to be aware of, but it usually doesn't influence our decision-making. Also, these cancers tend to arise, if, if someone isn't that lucky, unlucky one in 500, that tends to arise five, 10, 15 years down the road. And if you're 75, then maybe, you know, getting a cancer at age 90 is not your biggest concern when you're faced with a cancer that's an immediate threat to your life. Okay. Thanks very much. Okay. Uh, where should we go to next? Do you want, either of you have any more comments about sort of safety side effects that, that we haven't touched on? Otherwise, yeah. we'll move on to the new Corinne? One thing I, I, I didn't mention, but actually, you know, the the risk of side effects are, are higher if uh, treatments are combined. So, for example, I mentioned the combination of chemotherapy and radiotherapy, which is the standard treatment in locally advanced non-small cell lung cancer. And we know that when we do that, uh, the treatment works better. But on the other hand, the risk of side effects and part of the risk of inflammation of the gullet is increased by at least fourfold. Uh, so that is clearly something that we need to flag up to our patients when they start treatment, that, you know, and, and hence also why this treatment is generally delivered to patients who are fit and can you know, cope with these potential side effects. Okay, okay thank you. Quarter past one. This is normally when we stop the questions and we move, stop my bit and we move to questions, but we've kind of been merging things a little bit as we've gone along. So I'm just going to keep going. I wanted to ask you both about different ways of giving radiotherapy and some of these, these novel approaches. The two that sprung to my non-radiotherapist mind were brachytherapy. Firstly, what, what is brachytherapy and does it have a use in lung cancer? And then the second one, and, and, and Corinne, you've mentioned this as well, was this proton therapy. So maybe one of you could take brachytherapy and the other one could take proton therapy. Yeah, let's do that. So, so brachy, I'll do brachy because uh, Dr. Ferrofin is our proton expert and there's actually not a big role for brachy. So it's an easy question. Brachy just means, you know, again, we're learning about all the roots of these words. Brachy just means very close to or nearby brachytherapy. So in that case, what you're doing is you're taking a radiation source, like a radioactive pellet, and you're putting it next to a tumor. It's most commonly used for men with prostate cancer or women with cervical cancer, where it's easier for the men with prostate cancer to be in needles. Um, for the women with cervical cancer, it's either with a needle or with a, a, a long tube that can allow this little pellet to go next to a tumor. For lung cancer, the role isn't really there. Sometimes it can be used for a certain symptom like bleeding, where we go down with a, with a camera and we put a radioactive source right next to the tumor for a few minutes. But there was just, was just a big Canadian study not too long ago where they looked to see if that improved things compared to just external radiation, and it didn't seem to. 
So we only use it for very, very selected people. So for, for most people, brachytherapy, or as they say in the US, brachytherapy um, is not a role and doesn't have a role in their treatment. Okay. Is that the same in, in, in the UK, Corinne, that brachytherapy and lung cancer not really, not really going? Yeah, well, so actually, um, we, we had quite a big brachytherapy service where I worked at a Christie up to about two years ago. We've actually now stopped uh, completely the brachytherapy service because we're very, very few patients who were you know, eligible for this type of treatment. And actually, you know, you can deal with, you know, these tumors that grow from the you know, inside the airways with external beams or the standard ways of treating with radiotherapy. So yeah, it, it plays a very small role nowadays, I think. So maybe I can ask you about the proton therapy. Maybe just to couch that, I, when normal x-ray, the normal uh, radiation that's happening, what what are the radioactive particles that that you're using now? They're not protons then. No, so we're using X-rays, so as David explained uh, earlier. So protons is a is a different type of delivering radiation. So um, they they have very um, unique properties. So they essentially cause little, well, less damage to tissues because they pass through the tissues and they, you know, the high dose is delivered typically within the the tumor. So they're very effective in killing cells at the end of their path, if you like. And this means that you can deliver more radiation to the, the, the cancer itself and, you know, with the hope of reducing damage to the nearby normal tissues. Now, the problem with proton therapy in lung cancer is that we currently do not have much evidence that it is beneficial. So we know that we can reduce the dose. So if you look at the radiotherapy plan, we know that we can reduce the dose to lung tissue, to the heart, for example. But the impact of this uh, improvement has not been demonstrated. So we have no clinical trials to date but I've shown that using protons instead of photons actually improves survival of patients or, 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 or even has a major beneficial effect on the risk of side effects. So at the moment, I mean, it is certainly delivered. If you go to the US, for example, you, know, you will find centers that will offer proton therapy for lung cancer but that is not something that is evidence-based. And uh, in the UK, certainly we have a so-called indication list for protons. So the, you know, the government will uh, reimburse proton treatment in certain types of cancer and lung cancer is not on that list. So we are currently developing clinical trials to demonstrate the potential benefits of protons, but it's certainly not using the routine setting. Are these machines... Uh very expensive? Oh, yes, because yeah, millions of dollars and you know, they are still few around the world. I think, you know, certainly the countries where they are the largest number of machines will be the US and Japan. I mean, the UK, for example, we have a population of 60 million and we have two machines, one in our centre at the Christie and the other one in London. Uh, the one in London is just about to open. So for a number of years, we only had one centre for 60 million population yeah and david i was chatting with one of my colleagues here and it's a, a few months ago i think he told me this there are no proton 
machines in Canada or, is, or are there? Correct. Yeah, yeah, correct. Although some of my colleagues, this is unofficial, have told me that there is an announcement coming soon about potentially a, a proton machine. I think this is a, an area where in five years we're going to have some really good data and it is possible that the proton uh, a proton approach would be better for some patients. I think for a Canadian right now, if you have the option of getting photon radiation in Canada or paying probably 50 to 100,000 US to go get protons in the US uh, to get protons in there, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense um, until we know for sure that it's helpful. But, you know, when we do this, maybe we'll redo this podcast in five years and <laughs> we'll have some new data. Yeah, but the, so, the message uh, don't sell your house in order to go to uh, the US to get your proton treatment because we don't know that that's any better. Right. Know. That's right. Keep your house. Keep your house for sure. <laughs> keep your house. Yeah, and then you won't have to pay, in addition to your hundred thousand, the extra, uh, the extra thousand to get all the PCR tests you'll need to do to go back. <laughs> to go back so, um, okay. So I that was kind of the questions that I had. But what would you? Maybe I could ask you both with just kind of a minute or two. What do you think is the next big thing in radiotherapy? In in lung cancer that we we have to look forward to and then uh, actually i did have a question about small cell lung cancer so actually maybe we'll scrap that we'll do small cell lung cancer first um we do have a global expert in this in, in corinne you, you've led a lot of international research in radiotherapy in small cell lung cancer and and then we'll come back to the sort of crystal ball question small cell lung cancer uh, what, what's the role of radiation as you see it so a very big role for all stages of small cell lung cancer. So we tend to divide small cell into two groups. So patients who have disease that have not spread beyond the, the chest and then patients who have disease that has spread beyond the chest. And surgery plays a minor role in, in this disease. There is a very high risk of spread and particularly a high risk of spread to the brain. So in patients who have disease that is limited to the chest, uh, we give a combination of chemotherapy and radiotherapy, and that is typically followed by a course of uh, preventative radiotherapy to the brain to reduce the risk of patients developing secondaries within the brain. And then in patients who have sort of more widespread disease, again, radiotherapy plays a role. So chemotherapy and immunotherapy nowadays are the the most important part of a treatment, but we know that by giving radiotherapy to the chest after the systemic treatment, we can reduce the risk of uh, relapse within the chest. And then similarly, uh, by giving a course of preventative radiotherapy to the brain, we can reduce the risk of disease developing within the brain. So yeah, an important role and radiotherapy has played an important role in improving the survival of patients with small cell lung cancer over the last 20 years. And, and you mentioned the course of radiotherapy to the brain. Maybe we could just touch on that because we, you can use different techniques for, for brain radiation, can't you, where you treat the whole brain to prevent problems or whether you, if there is tumors you use now, the CyberKnife or Sabre or SBRT, the very focused radiation. What, what yeah. are the impacts, Karen, I guess, of treating the whole brain for someone's in, in terms of side effects or 
concerns about side effects? I mentioned mainly the preventative treatments so for patients who do not have secondaries within the brain and for those patients who have secondaries within the brain, and that is unfortunately very common in patients with small cell lung cancer. Uh, we can either treat the whole brain, but we know now that it is a treatment that not only causes side effects in the short term, but impact on quality of life, but also you know, several months after receiving treatment, some patients can develop some uh, problems with their memory functioning, some problems with balance as well, which is quite common. So we're now moving away more and more from this delivery of radiotherapy to the whole brain, and we're delivering more focused radiotherapy. So similarly to what David described for saber treatment within the chest, we're using so-called stereotactic radiosurgery, or the um, short SRS, that is delivered only to uh, the secondaries within the brain, and we can treat multiple secondaries uh, at the same time. So that is quickly becoming the standard way of treating the brain, uh, including in patients who have small cell lung cancer. Okay, thank you. Okay, so so maybe in the last a couple of minutes, then I can just ask you to get out your crystal ball and tell us what, what you think uh, are the, the big things coming that we're going to need to look out for in, in radiation treatments. Is is it proton therapy? Is it is it uh, is it something else? D David, do you want to go first? Yeah, the, the one I would pick is probably the one closest to my heart, although there are several that I think are very exciting. And that is that we're trying to push the boundaries in using Sabre for metastases. So at the beginning of the talk, we were talking about one, two or three spots of cancer. And someone in the chat asked, is it standard of care um, for one, two or three spots? And that would depend on the center that you're going to. But what we're doing right now is we're doing a large study for patients with up to 10 spots of cancer, 10 metastases and uh, treating those patients with stereotactic radiation to all spots of cancer. It's a randomized trial, so some get it and some don't. And that trial will be finished in less than a year. We'll have it done and we'll know if it's helpful. And, and whether the, the study shows us it's helpful or not, it's gonna be very important to inform how far do we push these boundaries. If it does show that it's beneficial, then that might be something that we're doing for, for many more people. And, and what we're doing here in London is we have a study open now with more the, the Little London for Dr. Faber-Finn, who's in the UK, what we're doing here in the Little London, we're doing more than 10 spots of cancer on a safety study right now that's almost finished. So we're, we're trying to push the boundaries to see how many spots can we treat safely in order to benefit patients. And, and we'll know that data within a couple of years. Great. And Corinne, what, what do you see as the big things coming? So, I mean, you know, it's, it's wonderful that there's uh, so many advances with new and modern technology, but I think for me, the two aspects that are important in the future, I mean, one you'll be pleased to hear, Paul, is the combination of drugs and particularly well, the number of novel drugs and even the therapy with radiotherapy, but also something I really believe in. I mean, everybody talks about artificial intelligence nowadays, and I think there's a huge amount uh, that we've got to learn from patients who are treated you know, in the routine setting. And by that, I mean patients who are not included in the clinical trials because they're either too elderly, too frail. And you know, we, we really have a big dilemma sometimes as to how best to treat them. And we should be learning more from that. We have, you know, in all of our centers, wealth of data on this. And 
by using this data, we could develop what we call decision support systems that can help both patients and clinicians making very complex decisions. For example, should I have radiotherapy at all? Should I have a, a lower dose of radiotherapy versus a high dose of radiotherapy? That sort of thing. So that's one of the things that we can do in the future. And, and at Lung Cancer Canada, one of our big pushes is, is not radiation specific, but one of the challenges that we're facing in lung cancer in Canada, and as we're learning in many countries, which is around access to care and equitable access to care. And we know that um, people in rural communities, lower socioeconomic groups, indigenous populations are, uh, have poorer outcomes from lung cancer ac across the board. So one of the, one of the goals would be you know, access to these radiotherapy technologies as well as, as, as drug treatments. We've answered just about all the questions. I, I should have said this at the beginning and I apologize for that. Some, some people have put in very specific questions about their own care. And um, I, I, I don't think it's really fair to ask the uh, clinicians here to answer those very personal questions about your care. So if, if you put one of those in, apologize. I apologize that I didn't mention that at the beginning. That probably should be specifically addressed with your own uh, your own team. Uh, Lung Cancer Canada, we're just coming to the end of Lung Cancer Awareness Month, which is every November. So um, strictly that finished yesterday, but we do have one more event, uh, which is on Sunday evening. It's our Lung Cancer Canada annual evening of hope. And you are all welcome to come to that. It's a virtual event. If you go to the lungcancercanada.ca website, you will be able to uh, register for that. Uh, Michelle has put a link in the chat. Here is the uh, here is the banner for that. So hopefully you'll be able to join us on uh, Sunday evening. Thank you, Professor Fay Finn, Professor Palmer, uh, newly anointed full professor in at University of Western Ontario. Congratulations. Thank you both of you for really we've covered a whole lot of ground and and learnt learnt a ton. And thank you both very much. Pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Corinne. Um, Thanks. Bye, everybody. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like, and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore Can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer, or share your story, visit our webpage at lungcancercanada.ca.